This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you guys doing today? Excellent. How are you doing? Doing great. Doing well, doing well. Adi Weiner is getting ready to leave the country. He's got business. He's got things to do. He can't make it this morning. He's usually here. Some combination of us are here anyway. Every Wednesday morning. You guys can be here, too. You can join us by telephone. Give us a ring. one 844 Wharton. That's one 942 7866 We will take your calls live. Drop us an email. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Especially if you're listening one of the times we're replayed. Over the next week, we'll be replayed four or five times. If it's not 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. on a Wednesday morning... It's a replay, but you can still reach out by email. You can also hit us up on Twitter anytime. Our handle on Twitter, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet occasionally about the world of sports analytics. You can send us questions, suggestions, over, under possibilities, complaints, whatever you got. At WMoneyBall is a good way to reach out to us. We have a regular show today in that we have guests, two guests, on the phone, one at the bottom of this hour and one at the top of the next hour. Open lines now. Curious gentlemen, Eric, Shane, curious, what in the world of sports has caught your eye? Well, there was actually a rare occurrence in sports, but it's not a sport any of you guys pay that much attention to, except maybe at four times of the year, which is tennis. But a very, very rare occurrence happened. So a person uh, basically ranked number 50 in the world, a female tennis player, who had some success early in her career. She's only 21 now. Belinda Bencic. Swiss player, plays, by the way, most of her successes come playing doubles with Roger Federer and in Roger's Cup and stuff. She did something that's rarely done in tennis, in any sport. She beat four top ten players to win this recent tournament. Hmm. So she beat Sabalenka, who's number nine in the world, Svitolina, who's number six, Halep, who's number three, and Kvitova, who's number two. I had heard of one of those four. You've heard of Simona Halep. (laughs) One of those four. You've not heard of Petra Kvitova, the two-time Wimbledon champion? Pass. Uh, <laughs> all right. You never heard of Svitolina, who was at least a U.S. Open my, finalist my, if she didn't win the U.S. My, Open. No, I, my, I, this is on me. This is on me. My There's, reaction is, yeah. what's wrong with her ranking? Yes. Well, that's a good question. So she had Or been, their ranking. Yeah. She had been injured for a while. And then, matter of fact, a year ago, she was playing in what they call the satellite tour. She was so far off the top 200, she wasn't even in any of the major tournaments. But injuries and not playing are good reasons to be misranked. So her highest ranking that she had ever achieved was number 12, which is certainly very good. But even let's even say a number 12 player in the world, you wouldn't necessarily expect a number 12 player to win four consecutive matches right. against top 10 players. Right. And so this wasn't, by the way, I don't even mean four consecutive over two or three tournaments, which would still be impressive. I'm talking talking about four consecutive in a five-day span. That's a nice run. Nice yeah. run. So, how, how close were the matches? 
Well, uh, how about she was down five match balls against Sabalenka in the second round of the tournament? Is that pretty close? Yeah. yeah. She was down. I watched the match for some reason. Well, I'm always up, but I was some reason it was like three o'clock in the morning. I was like, wonder what's on the tennis channel. And so I put it on and I was watching the, I saw the actual end of that match and she just was in total disbelief. I'm like, okay, well, that's a great win. She's going to lose to Svitolina, U.S. Open finalist, who's number six. No, beat her. Then I'm like, well, she can't beat Simona Halep. Like, Two weeks ago, the number one right. player in the world. Right. Nope, she beat her. And then it's like, well, she's going to lose to Petra Kvitova in the finals. Nope, she beat her. Wow. And so I had just, as a matter of fact, I hadn't looked up, but I'm going to... I don't remember the last time. Of course, we have availability bias and all this. I don't remember the last time a tennis player in a single tournament has beaten four top ten players. Because normally, by the way, you wouldn't even have the opportunity. This is, gets back to sample size. Someone might say, oh, it's been ten years. I don't even know someone who's had the opportunity to play four yeah. top tens because usually, yeah. and also this wasn't a major. Like, who are all, like, how is this that she's playing all of these seeds in these early rounds? Either way, Good. that caught my eye yep. in sports. Yeah, yeah that's I, interesting. So, kind of with the Kate's question, the fact that it happened, you know, you know, you look at that and you say, well, she's clearly probably misappraised in terms of her current ranking, and she should move up. She's you, going to would, now. Would you would you say that more, given that she just beat people four people in a row in a single tournament, versus like her winning those four matches kind of spread out over the last month across different well, tournaments? It's a great point <laughs> psychologically so let, well, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So let me say two things about that. One is um, it'll show you the flaw in the tennis ranking system, or you could say it's a flaw. Um, She's not going to move up that much because this isn't one of the big tournaments. There's points assigned to each tournament. It's not an ELO model. It doesn't matter who do she you, beats. Do you think that's right? No, I, I said I think that's a flaw, you think it's flaw? in the tennis okay. ranking system. If, is it, so it's not designed to be optimally predictive. That is correct. Okay. It's it, rewarding past behavior. It's rewarding sense. past okay. behavior. And also, certain tournaments have a certain number of points. And you win this tournament, you get, I'll make it up, 200 points. You win a Grand Slam, you get 2,000 points. Yeah. It doesn't again, matter whether she beats Shane Jensen, Cade Massey, and Eric Bradlow to win it. That doesn't affect. Right. Now, it affects. They do have a strength ranking system. It'll ah, affect that. Okay. But anything that has to do with world ranking, seeding in tournaments, has nothing Does, to do with that. Point, those points aren't based on some sort of, like, again, you could calculate, sort of, Find the optimal points based on some kind of predictive sort of or, you know, perspective. Or you could see who signs up for the tournament. Yeah. You could then – I mean, this is, a, this is not what any sport does. You could dynamically allocate points depending on who's in the tournament, the strength mm-hmm. of the field. That would right. be an interesting system. Right. That's not done in any sport. But, no, yeah. she won this tournament, and she gets whatever points. She, matter of fact, you guys even know about this. You'll sometimes see – if you ever watch a tennis tournament, they'll say, like, this is an ATP 250. This is an ATP 500. This is a Master Series 1000. You ever wonder what those numbers are? Well, that's the number of points you get if you win the tournament. Right. And then the Grand Slam is 2000. But they even put in the name of the tournament. So I don't remember if this was a 250 or 500, but this wasn't a Tier 1 or Tier 2 type of win. Gotcha. But So I was just thinking about its effect on ranking system versus your belief in her strength. Your belief yeah. in her strength has to go way up, but her ranking won't move that far. Right, right. Well, uh, speaking about beliefs and updating, one thing that jumped out to me was this Raptors-Celtics game. I was number night. two so on this, my list. This is all, yeah. you know, that we're, we try to make basketball interesting by talking about what might happen in the East. And so, <laughs> you know, the Celtics looked so good last year, and the question's been, you know, whether they're going to take the next step this year. But Toronto has been great. Yeah. Uh, um, the Bucks have been great. And Toronto came in and spanked these guys. So I, so I saw a bunch of that game, and... This is what, you know, I also just saw recently Philadelphia and Toronto play each other. This Toronto team, forget what the score is. 
Celtics scored only 95 points. This Toronto team is extraordinarily athletic, and they're built entirely around defense. When I saw last night's game and the Sixer game, the Sixers couldn't even pass the ball around the court without somebody being on them. Every pass is contested. Every shot is contested. Even on rotation plays where guys are shooting threes, they're getting out to the shooters. This is a team that is built. Look, I'm not saying they're going to beat the Warriors. Let's be real. Well, that is the question. Well, well, it's a question. Well, I'll say the following. I think Toronto, I'm now, just my belief, as we're sitting here, still 20-something games left in the season, of the top five teams in the East, let's, believe, let's be honest, the Bucks, the Raptors, not even the Pacers, the Bucks, the Raptors, the Sixers, and the Celtics are the four teams that could come out of the East. Yeah. I think Toronto is built best to actually compete with the teams in the West, because they've got Kawhi Leonard now, they've got a guy that can finish, they've got enough offense, they put up 118 points against a very good Celtic defensive team, Mm -hmm. and they play tremendous defense. I'm starting to buy Toronto or Milwaukee coming out of these. So you think, and I guess that was going to be my follow-up question, um, you say that their kind of defense-first strategy probably matches up the best of, in terms of the finals, playing somebody from the West. Do you think it also is what would best predict them? Do you think that that is... They have, are the favorites to come out of the East because of that defensive first strategy it's as well? Good, it's a good question. I mean, matter of fact, I'd be interested just to relate to other sports. I'm interested in Cade and how when you know they build Massey Peabody, how they think about this. I believe you guys have both an offensive and a defensive strength, right? That, or, um, or a score even, for teams. Even finer than that. There are components. So four, about four or five components on each side. Okay. So my question becomes... Which you can roll up into sides. Okay. Yeah. So my question was... When you think about it, like who? Did, maybe this is your. This is how I'm interpreting your question, Shane. Does a defensive-oriented team have a better chance to beat a team that's in their strength category, like another good defensive yeah. team, but not quite as good as them? Or would you rather them play the Warriors, who are okay defensive team, but not great, but obviously a great offensive team? Yeah. So, is it? Do you want to play like like or like different? So, yeah, and I, I think it, it matters which. I mean, it's it's a it was a complicated question in the sense that you have to take into account kind of the. Defensive I was guessing, versus, but was that your question? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I was kind of asking, like, I guess with the current other teams in the running, like the Sixers and the Bucks and the Celtics, does a defensive sort of first strategy kind of match up well, particularly against those opponents, as well as kind of envisioning Golden State in the finals? I think the way I view, you know, if I had to score the top four teams that I suggested right now, I would say the Celtics and the Six. I would say the Sixers are the most offensive of those four teams, but the weakest defensively of those four. I would say the Celtics are a good offensive team and a good defensive team, but not excellent in either. I would say Toronto, as we just talked about, I think Toronto is a good offensive team and an excellent defensive team. And the Bucks are also built defensively as well. I think those are the two best defensive teams, and maybe even the points allowed uh, would actually suggest that. I know the Celtics for a long time were a very good defensive team. Yeah. I I think like I like that it's currently configured so that like if the season ended today the Sixers and Celtics would have to hit each other in the first round. Wow, I'm <laughs> actually kinda, I'm actually glad to, glad to look at the data. I see here that actually the Indiana Pacers are the number one defensive yeah, you team dismiss, in the East. You dismiss those guys. I, I have an intuition that I, I don't trust at all, but the intuition is that a, a team that is smothering the Celtics and the Sixers and looking so good on defense might not be able to smother a team as offensively powerful as the Warriors. That that a team that 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 there's a that that defense first strategy might be more effective until you get to the very most elite 
uh, offensive teams. So you see them potentially getting to the Eastern Conference Finals, maybe, but not being able to, but or possibly even the no, finals. No finals. I'm just, I'm just. I mean, it's like that could it be. feels like a, a their strength might be neutralized at a certain level of offensive play, but it's just an yeah. intuition. Yeah. But but there's a general question here about. Are, do these interactions matter? Because in football, we've looked for the interactions and they're not there. You just add it. If you want to know how good a team is and how they're going to perform against another team, it doesn't matter whether it's a good defense against a good offense or a good defense against a bad offense. What matters is the sum of their offensive and defensive rankings. In football, the matchup doesn't matter. People always claim that or matchups the matchup, matter. The matchups probably matter, but at like a different resolution of like individual schemes well, or, or individual maybe, defensive maybe, strategies. But mainly, but, I think that it, that's a story that right. we believe that I is see. less true just, in reality. Just, okay. for, just for our listeners out there, you know, we've talked about this concept of an ELO model many times. Just so people know, the basics of the model is teams have scores. And they may have, as Kay just described, they may have an offensive-defensive score, but eventually you add it up to a total team strength. And then you just look at the difference in the two strengths. There isn't an interaction term there like, let me take the difference in their offensive scores and the difference in their defensive scores and then potentially multiply those two together or look for an interaction. What Cade's saying is, and I've seen this as well, the data suggests it's just overall team strength and the difference in those two overall team strengths. Yeah. Um, the other team I would mention, by the way, something else that happened since our, our show last week, was that... Houston beat Golden State for the third time. Now, they're 3-0 and against Golden State this regular season. This time was without James Harden. The last two, the first two times were without Chris Paul. And just remember, you know, as Daryl Morey has said, we were a hamstring away from beating, <laughs> from yeah. beating Golden State. Sports Let's remember, man. they were up 3-2. Sports. Chris Paul gets injured, and they lose the last two games. But they were up 3-2 against Golden State in the Western Conference Finals last year. At some point, them being having been undefeated against Houston, I mean against Golden State, has to mean something. It just has to. People say the regular season doesn't matter. Well, it matters to Houston and their psychology. It has to matter. Well, it, I think that's fair, especially when you start getting up to, it's not just one game, it's three games. And if you look at, we, we were just talking about the, the, the Raptors-Warriors possibilities. They, of course, play. And they've played twice this okay. year, one on each side. The Raptors barely eked out a win, three-point win in overtime in Toronto, and then got spanked by 20 out there in the Bay Area. So that gives you a little bit of a sense of – that gives – oh, no, I've got it exactly wrong. They won out there. Wow. Okay, Raptors won out there. I had it, I had it flipped. <laughs> I had such a strong theory that it was going to be that way that I misread it. The Raptors are 2-0, and and they won by 20 points out there in San Francisco. But, right. By the way, both games were before Cousins came back. So mm-hmm. I don't know how big a, mm-hmm. big a factor he's going to be, but if he's up to full strength, he'll be a factor. The other thing I've started to notice also, just paying attention to the Warriors a little bit, is that age curves have finally started to creep in and catch up with them. And I don't just mean because of guys' injuries. I'm just saying that their core has a lot of miles on it over the last five years. And I'm starting to see, like, if you watch, matter of fact, the motion data actually suggests this as well. They've started to slow down defensively a little bit. Let me just stop it and let's make sure. You said age curve, but you also, you're suggesting that it's not just age, it's games. And these guys have played so many extra games because of how deep they've gone in the postseason every year. Well, that's, you know, let me just say, by the way, it's what's remarkable what people keep saying about LeBron, because let's remember the guy in the NBA who's played the most games. And by the way, if you watch LeBron play now, too, he's LeBron 90% of the time now. 
then the other 10% of the time you're like, wow, LeBron didn't get back on defense. Wow, that guy beat LeBron off the dribble and just laid the ball in. Okay. And so and this what, year it's 90, next year it'll be 85. And then, well, that's what a, but, well, well, I'll get to golf in a second in Tiger Woods, but that's exactly what you're starting to see with the Warriors, which is, in, I hate to put this way, but all their guys are an old 30. I understand they're only 30. But wow, they've okay, played so, a and, lot and, of minutes. And, and I think there's no real disagreement between the two. It's just that, you know, when we talk about age curve, what we really mostly talk about, it, age is a proxy for the amount of mileage or the amount of kind I of like both matter, expenditure. Both, both matter, right? They're different factors. I mean, it's they not are just different. It's not, I just. A guy who's play, who plays. Let, well, let's, let's be concrete about it. How many extra games will the average team play who, who goes all the way and wins the championship? How many well, rounds? There are four there's rounds? four rounds. So you might play an extra, tw- let's say, 25 games. Yeah. Okay, so 25 on top of a regular season of 70, no, 82. 82. So almost yeah. a third more. Right. Yep. Not quite a third more, but almost a third more. That's in one season. And then you do that, how many years in a row have they done this? Well, well, LeBron, we know eight, but then four or five. But also, let's not forget, a lot of those guys have also played in whether it's the Olympics, in other types of events. So it's not just those. Okay, it's but other that's, events, but that's too. The, that's the heaviest, and, the, and it's most intense as well. They play they play a different kind of caliber of basketball in the, NFL, yeah. in the NBA playoffs. But you're talking about over a three-year run, or certainly over four-year, but really over three-year, you're adding another season. I think another way yeah. to also frame it, maybe you guys disagree with the framing of it, is it's also two months less of rest yeah, yeah, and right. training in the offseason. Mm-hmm. So you don't right. finish till the middle end of June. And the other guys, I hate to say it, but you know they've lost six, eight weeks earlier, so they're already training for the next season. Or, Besides, or taking it off. Or tra- taking, training by resting. Training by, yeah, by yeah, resting yeah, in a yeah, variety yeah. of ways. This is one of the most amazing things about European soccer. These guys play these absurd schedules where – they're interweaving their regular season games with Champions League games or Europa League games, and I mean I don't know how they do it. It's and it's, and it's very disparate. So you know and they're running about ten miles per per game or something yeah, like that. Only that, only yeah. that, and the, and they might be playing a team on a Saturday morning who didn't have a Champions League game that week, and and this is just a very different. Contest. Yeah. So I'm, you know, again, or I more, mean, baseball where they have to go up to bat like three times a game, three, four <laughs> times a game, and they, you know. So Damn. the more I've watched some every other day, go, some guy might have to go four. And I the know, other guys I know, to go three. I know. And if it goes extra innings, I mean, how do they do it? That extra bat. How do they do it? So the more we I've watched the NBA, <laughs> yeah. we'll never get another baseball guest on this show. <laughs> All I'm saying is the more I've watched the NBA, to me, Toronto and Milwaukee, I don't think it's a fluke that they're up top in the East. And I'm starting to – look, I would take – Are you actually starting to believe that Golden State is kind of fallible? Yes. Basically? Yes, I do. All right. All right. Maybe this is the year. Maybe this is the year. This is Wharton Moneyball. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. You guys can jump in here. one eight four four wharton one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six, or give us a shout on Twitter at W Money. But we have a question from Mike Shannon. That's at M Shannon CPA. At M Shannon CPA, we know what Mike does for a living. He says, "Wouldn't tennis players insist on changing tennis ranking methodology? If I'm number three, I'd be mad if I had to play her, the woman who just won this tournament, supposed number fifty, sixty, um, who just beat." Four top ten players. I'd be mad if I'm number three and I play her because supposedly I'm getting an easy draw. But in fact, the rankings are so whacked, I'm not getting an easy draw. This is a very reasonable suggestion. 
Yeah, so uh, Mike's question is a good one. So they've tried to put on Band-Aids on these, you know, so they have called, called now protected rankings for various things. And this isn't, a, this isn't a bad idea. You know, for example, Serena Williams was a big advocate for this, which I'm supportive of. If someone, you know, has a child, your ranking is protected. Yeah. Like you can't fall a certain amount based on childbirth, which we all agree is probably a good idea. But there is no, the system, look, it happens in at junior levels, too. I see it as well. As you guys all know, my kids played squash growing up. Squash tournaments have different numbers of points. So what people will strategically do is they will travel to, I'm making it up, Cincinnati to play a high-level tournament when they know no one else is going to go to that tournament. You win right. that tournament. doesn't matter whether you beat the 300th-ranked person or the third-ranked person. You get a lot of points. Mm-hmm. I've noticed all – I don't want to say racket sports, but I know it's true in squash. I know it's true in tennis. They There is a ranking. The ranking is based on points, and it's based on money. Trying to get players – you have to play certain tournaments – it's not about who you beat. If you want to be highly ranked, you must play these tournaments, and that's what they use to sell the sport. Yeah, this yeah. is the thing. They've got um, they've got multiple purposes here. It's yeah. not just a power ranking. They have to keep these guys coming in. Okay, so changing gears, the, one of the nice little things that ESPN does for us on their front page is they give us this on this date stuff. They throw us. They give us a throwback. And on this date, twenty seven years ago. Tiger Woods played his first PGA tournament. He played it as a 16-year-old. He was the youngest player to compete in the PGA Tour. This was an L.A. tournament. He's a Southern California boy. He 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 posted one over 72. They say, but oh. Woods, I'm, I'm brazing it. It's interesting, of course, and the picture is amazing because he is just a boy. But he just had a top 10 finish. And Eric, you're always got a Tiger Woods watch. I think you have a dedicated TV to Tiger Woods in your home. Yeah. What's the latest? Well, so first of all. Let me say, I'm very encouraged on some dimensions and not as encouraged on others. So I've watched, I probably watched every single hole of the of the, the tournament he just played this last weekend. There was the, one of these WGC, so one of these big point events, not the majors, but just one level below is down in Mexico City. And Tiger was, is very interesting. This gets back to my 90%, 10%. So Tiger, in the, in the three tournaments he's played this year, has, is in the top five in birdies. Top five! in the top five in bogeys, too. Mm. And so this is what happens. That's not a bad strategy for winning tournaments. No, no. That's what I was going to get to. So his driving accuracy has looked better than, you know, Tiger can hit the driver. No, Tiger now can hit the driver. He's actually the closest to the pin. He three-putted six greens. Now, just so you know, for a pro, it doesn't matter whether you're 60 feet away or 20 feet away, you should not be three-putting holes. In one tournament, and he also four-putted one hole. So, Eric, that's amazing, and it just it, it's a, it's astonishing to me, even as a golfer, it's astonishing to me yeah, that, that that golf that that putting would degrade. Of all the skills you'd expect to degrade over time with age, putting you'd expect to be the last one. Physically, yeah. it should be the last one. Well, so, why why do we have any science? Well, one is that empirically true, and do we have any science explaining why it might be true? So, here's what I I, I don't know. Um, I mean. You know, there's always the lore of what happens to older players is you get, they call it the yips. And so what that means is your putting stroke is supposed to be same speed back, same speed forward. And what you actually end up noticing is as players get older, this I've seen data on, they actually don't bring it back the same speed. So they actually jerk the 
club back, and then they have to accelerate through so they don't actually tend to hit the putts on their line as carefully. Interesting. So there's, okay. And actually, if you think about it, what tends to go as you get older, people have talked about this, is some fine motor skills. Yeah. And putting is related. That's not fine. I mean, putting's not a fine motor skill. It's finer than a swing, than a drive. It's right. Well, well, no, but that's what I'm referring to. to. Shots, that's what I meant. Is, relative right? to, I'm just answering your question. I'm just saying relative to the other shots. I mean, you know. I don't know. I'd, here's the main question. Is, is it physical or is it mental? That's what it yeah. comes That's a separate. That's yeah. another issue as and well. I, I, I guess um, it sounds like there, it, there's a possibility for both here. But all I right. would say is, yeah. back to your comment about how's Tiger doing, yeah, Tiger's played awful. He's played three tournaments. He's been 20th, 15th, and 10th. Yeah, that's real awful. <laughs> yeah. And so, and, like and by the way, and putting terribly. So, I, you know, I agree with you. I'm looking, I mean, he looks, also, he's played, he played the last two weeks. He's taking one week off. He's playing another two weeks. I don't see, matter of fact, he looks more fit to me, thinner to me. He He's swinging the club well. I think there's, well, we know he won the biggest tournament at the end of last year. He's well, he, winning tournaments he's this always, year. He's, he's always, winning. He's always been focused on the bigger tournaments. I mean, at his he's prime, gearing he, up did, for the Masters. he didn't worry about the non-majors at all. But, really. it, but you actually bring up an interesting point. So I don't know if you guys saw who won this last week. Dustin Johnson, you know, former. You've heard of him, number yeah. one. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Certainly, up until recently, he was number one in the world. Justin Rose from England is number one right now, but Dustin Johnson was number one in the world. This shows you how great Tiger is. So, Dustin Johnson, I'll give you guys a stat, and then I'll ask you a question. He's won twenty tournaments now worldwide, which, by the way, only thirty-eight people have done. People are like, oh, everybody, lots of people have won twenty. No, only thirty-eight people in the history of golf have won twenty tournaments. How many majors do you think Dustin Johnson has? Two. How many majors? All right. I I, I think I mean I, I know he's blown some late. I mean it's like one or he has you, one. Yeah, he okay. has one. So just to show you, let's assume his let's assume Tiger Woods' win rate was the same. Well, Tiger Woods has eighty wins and fourteen majors. Right. Dustin Johnson has twenty wins and one major. So. The thing that's remarkable about Tiger Woods is the number of, I mean, 14 majors out of 80 wins. It's well, just remarkable. I mean, part of that is, no, the, it, as, as Cade said, he focuses, you know, I mean, like, you know, in some years he... he yeah, but he, why he, doesn't he, Dustin Johnson figure that out, too? I mean, no one cares how well, many I mean, more, Dustin you know, Johnson Dubai may, classics he wins. No, Dustin Johnson may have, having not played, you know, having not won 80 tournaments, he may still have a different objective function as far as, like, why he's playing tournaments, right? I mean, he play Tiger clearly made a mid-career decision to focus mostly on the main... I mean, he'd already made whatever money he wanted to make, and, like... Like, he could just focus on the majors. Dustin Johnson may or may not be in the same position as that. Uh, he's definitely in the same position as that. Uh, he also, I mean, this is, you know, I just don't know what financial wealth comes with yeah. him. He is married to Wayne Gretzky's daughter. Oh. So that's, you know, that's not going to bring such just, financial just, hardship. Just no, no, he, I mean, it's, means, no, it's like, no being married to Giselle, but that's not bad. Oh, my God. Okay, let's talk about the past. No, let's not talk about the past. It just means he's less interested in golf, Eric. Well, I mean, maybe. On. Either way, I would say um, the Tiger watch is everything's trending well. Tiger's yeah. going to win again very soon. And I'm I'm predicting, I'm sure, maybe we'll do it as an over-under. Oh, we should. Uh, no, no, let's just have .5 majors this year for Tiger. We'll do that as an over-under. Right. So, by the way, I asked for data. We have data. Matty Datz, boss man, producer here, throws some data here. I said, is it true that the decay over time comes from putting because that's one of the stories maybe it's too glib a story turns out no that's uh that's not where it comes from if you look at the age curve it's kind of interesting just performance on the pga above or below average 
you see a you see a trend up from through the mid twenties to the early thirties. Peaking peak, around thirty two or peak something. Peak performance like is around thirty two and then a steady decline, steady linear decline down into the late forties. And you know, this is probably not adjusted for time. This has certainly changed over time, but for some period of time this is the sample. And then you can overlay, okay, does that decay come from putting or other parts of the game? Yeah. All right. So what do you see? What do you see is basically almost no decline in putting, just the smallest of decline in the once you get into the forties, you end up losing, I don't know, like a, a not even a tenth of a standard deviation on the putting. But the rest of the game falls off with the age curve. Mm-hmm. It's practically all coming from the non-putting part of the game. All right. so, well, so, it's good to have data. Uh, yeah. It's availability, Eric. It's this thing where we see guys with the yips in key moments, and we say, oh, well, that well, guy's but, but, 40. He can't putt anymore. Turns out, yeah, it's but, not so really what's I'm, going I'm on. So I'm going to protect myself just a little bit. Oh, but also no, to I'm bring guilty. Up, no, no, no. I'm guilty. No, no, no. But You're to both bring up guilty a, in my eyes. But to bring up a statistical point, this is all tournaments, which is self-selected in the sense that older players – aren't necessarily in the pressure positions as much as younger players. So let's just I'm not saying this isn't this isn't driving right. the fact. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying mm-hmm. I don't now that I look at this, I agree with you. Putting is clearly not the dominant force. But let's just be a little bit careful that forty three year olds like Tiger Woods aren't in these heavy pressure situations as much. Especially historically. Especially yeah. historically. Right. Yeah. All right. So coming up at the bottom of this hour, anything else before we leave the open open lines section here? Well, just one other thing. Uh, so I'd be interested in Shane on this. So if I told you a team, just I don't know historically hockey as well. Yeah. If I told you a team was over 500, 30 wins, 26 losses, and seven ties, would that team be a playoff team typically or trending towards yeah. the playoffs? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's the Philadelphia Flyers record right now. They have 67 points. And they're seven points out of the last wild card spot, which is held by the Pittsburgh Penguins at thirty three twenty two and eight. Yeah, so that's the last wild card. Yes, yeah, seventy four points. So what? The, I mean, what, is it that so high they're just bear- crushing the West? No, no. So that well, yeah. So or or there's some really bad teams out there and that and are getting it, essentially no it, points. Hockey's kind, uh, of, uh, hockey's kind of an interesting this year. I was going to kind of bring it up because we are seeing sort of a, I think a little bit more very kind of spread in kind of team-level performance than we typically have historically. I mean, that's kind of a notable thing. Tampa Bay Lightning, they have a record. They could break the record for points in a season as, as a team. That they're, on track, they're yeah. on track to. They're on track to. And, I mean, it's amazing. They, I mean, a record like 48-11, and 11, basically, which is their current record, that's, a bat, that's an NBA record. You're that's right. not an NHL not, record. I mean, NHL hockey record. teams typically do not have that kind of but differential. I would, I, thank you for putting that in perspective, because I was just saying, the, six, the Flyers yeah. may end up well above 500, and I don't say... Not particularly close to yeah. the playoffs. Yeah, so, and I, but, I haven't actually looked close enough to the bottom of the standings to just see how bad the bad teams are. But I, I, I would guess that something is happening here a little bit like is happening in baseball right now, where right. you're able to kind of pile up these really impressive win records, in part because the bottom part of the you know of the league is is very bad right now. So one thing we need to find out, I believe the Lightning are uh, analytics forward team, mm-hmm. and um, I'm pretty naive on that because I tend to run around saying the Leafs are the most advanced. They've got this great young GM, and we should be paying attention to what the Leafs are doing. Well, the Lightning, from what I understand, may even be ahead of the Leafs. They've been yeah. doing it for longer. They've they've been they, you know. Dubas has only been in his position for one year. I would love to know more. Matty D, I would love to know more about what's going on with the Lightning. We need to get someone from the hockey world to explain that to us. 
Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Shane Jensen in here this morning. Eric Bradlow in here this morning. Cade Massey in here this morning. Audie Weiner is out and about. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can join us. Please do. Give us a shout. one 844 Wharton. That's one 844 Or hit us up on email, businessradio at cirrusxm.com. Or catch us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is the account up there. You guys can send us questions, complaints, observations, over-under suggestions. We are into our over-under segment now that we're in the off-season. The football off-season, that is. Of course, we'll wrap up the show with some with some uh, over-under. So send us, your, send us your suggestions. At WMoneyBall is the account up there. I need to pick. We need to have like 200 over under so I can catch up, by the way. So I'm going to be picking up a big list next week. <laughs> no, 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 no. We have, a new, we have a new season. We have a new season. A two, oh. 2019 season. New rankings, new yeah, board. Yeah, that's right. So I'm you, so happy. Thank fresh, you. A fresh start, Eric. Get a fresh start. We have a question from Elliot Sterling at ET underscore Sterling. At ET underscore Sterling. He says, I really got into NASCAR the last few years. There's tons of analytics involved, which most people don't know. When are you going to start covering NASCAR? So what's interesting is that um, I've just recently started to pay a little bit of attention to NASCAR. So um, I mean that's what we need for for so actual can, information on the Elliot, show is you Elliot, to pay attention very to soon. It. I promise <laughs> yeah. you, I will start watching. We'll pick. A, we'll pick. A, yeah, Eric needs more sports distractions. We can pick a race and do some analytics. We've had we've had racing folks on here before. It's been a couple of years, but we were amazed at the amount of analytics that go mm-hmm. into it. That's right. Tell you what, NASCAR is big in the South, and our next guest is located in the South doing some things that are very important to the South. Lyle Kane, Dr. Lyle Kane is joining us. He specializes in orthoscopy. I can't even say that right. He's an orthopedic surgeon, sports-related injuries. Um, We're talking to him. He's down there in Birmingham. Not sure where he is this morning, but Dr. Kane, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Glad to have you. Where are you calling in from this morning? I'm in Birmingham. You are in Birmingham. Birmingham, Alabama. All right, Dr. Kane, we, let, we want to hear about what you got going on and what 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 view you have on the world of sports medicine these days. We talk to people from around sports around the world, and we have been intrigued by what's been going on in sports science the last few years. It feels like one of the real frontiers, and for if you're looking for an advantage, one of the real advantages. And we talk about injury prevention, and that's being kind of the uh, a, a thing that teams have struggled with, but they realize that they can figure it out. It'll be helpful for the athletes and the organization. So we love talking to people like you. Can you tell us how you got going this direction in the business? You went, how soon did you know in your medical career that you wanted to do sports-related stuff? Well, I think, you know, interestingly, I started out as an athlete like most of us and, and played most sports through high school and was a fan as well and loved, you know, watching sports and keeping up with certain teams. And I think, you know, orthopedic sports medicine kind of evolved in the 1970s. And and when I was, I'm in my early 50s now, and so that was kind of when I was a kid and growing up, and I started seeing, you know, what doctors were doing in terms of taking care of athletes and started hearing about it. And when I was in medical school, it was kind of a natural evolution of, of taking your interest in sports and your interest in, in athletes and teams and using your medical background, and, and I'm also an engineer by, by background, so using that uh-huh. to, to kind of apply to, to the science of taking care of athletes. and. I had the opportunity soon after training to work with Dr. James Andrews uh, here in Birmingham for a year as a, as a specialty training in sports medicine. And, and doing that, I really saw the total package of what it takes to be a sports medicine doctor. It, it really uh, you know, it was kind of my deal, and it got me into the, 
to the to the job I'm in now, and and it's really been a gratifying experience. Well, so even folks who aren't medically trained know of James Andrews, of course, through the Tommy John surgery sure. and how how well he's known for that. How how did you make that step? And then when you say I saw what's involved with sports medicine, the whole package, what what is involved? Like what's different from what you do compared to someone who another orthopedic surgeon? Well, kind of kind of broadly, sports medicine is a specialty field in, in orthopedic surgery that takes care of athletes and active people. And what I saw was, was that, that as I was going through my training in orthopedics, you do a lot of different organizational things. You work in trauma, you work in joint replacement, you work with pediatrics and spine surgery in different fields. Sports medicine is unique in that you actually spend a lot of time working with teams and athletes and trainers and you know people taking care of, of athletic type individuals. And, and when I spent time with Dr. Andrews, I had the opportunity to interview with him to be a, 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 what's called a fellow, which is a, a year of specialty training after your orthopedic training to learn how to be a sports medicine doctor. And, and during that time, you really see that, that it's more than just orthopedic surgery. It's more than just you know taking care of a knee or an elbow. It's really about communication with the athlete, communication with the athletic trainer, with the coaches, the parents, the agents. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what's made James Andrews so special over the years is that he has a unique way of making all those people feel comfortable and you know at the end of the day they know that they're going to get the best care possible mm-hmm. it's interesting how you know we talk about analytics a lot on this show and we end up talking you know details of the analytics but we also again and again are reminded how important the communication of those analytics are and you're talking about an analogy there in medicine where yeah we can fix the knee we can fix the elbow but you got to make sure everyone's on the same page and everyone is a big team around the individual athlete tell us about the advances in in your specialty, you know, compared to early on, somebody blows it early on being we're all, you know, most of us here early 50s as well. So we're kind of coming from the same place. A guy blows a knee in high school back then and his athletic career is over, essentially. And now guys are like they're not even dropping in the draft after missing their senior year because of a blown knee. How much of that it comes from the technology of the operate the procedure itself versus everything you've learned about how to recover and recuperate from that? Well, I think it's a great point. It really has been an amazing uh, change in the last, say, 30 years, you know, from when we were in high school to where we are now. And, and I think some of that surgical, surgical technique, some of it's the understanding of, you know, how to fix an ACL or a labrum or something and make it more more stable and stronger. But a lot of it comes from just the process of rehabilitation and, and how we treat athletes after surgery. You know, back in the – when ACLs first started being performed back in the late 1970s, the theory was that that you had to immobilize the joint with a cast for six or eight weeks, mm-hmm. you know, and that really put you behind the eight ball, and you had a hard time getting your mobility back, and you had no muscle, and you know the rehab was a year, and even then most people didn't get back all the way completely normal. So, you know, rehabilitation changed probably in the in the late 80s, early 90s, and people started going to more aggressive, immediate rehab right after surgery. You know, I think a lot of the the programs that we have now, you know, some of the things in physical therapy, like there's a new process we call. BFR, blood, blood flow restriction therapy, where you can really make a muscle grow in hypertrophy quickly by putting a light tourniquet on the leg. It came from the military, and it's been a really huge advancement in the last couple of years in terms of progressing strength after a surgery. And, and so I think little things like that that come out allow us to, to move faster, to let the body heal quicker, to get the muscle tone back faster and let these athletes return at a quicker rate. So real quickly, clarification on that. That was rather counterintuitive, obviously. You're saying by restricting blood flow to the area, you actually accelerate the recovery process. Yeah, it's definitely counterintuitive. I think when we first saw it, all of us thought this was crazy. But it came through some, some background in, in military uh, training and, and advancements. 
And, and what what they found was that by by allowing the the blood flow into a leg, for instance, doing a leg exercise, so you, you allow the blood flow in, but you restrict the blood flow back out. It's kind of like if you squeeze uh-huh. your index finger and it turns a little purple and red. Um, that blood flow engorgement helps the muscle to hypertrophy and changes the chemical response, and you actually get better muscle strengthening than you do just with normal workouts. So you can do, say, a leg press with 20 pounds instead of 200 pounds and get the same kind of muscle bulk and hypertrophy without stressing the joint as much. So it's a it's a nice way early on after surgery to, to grow muscle bulk and tone without stressing the joint that's, that's been that's been operated on. T- terrifically interesting, and that kind of innovation is, is really, it's a neat part of the process. I, I'm struck by how you described the change from the 70s into the into the 80s and 90s on on active recovery essentially you go from immobilizing a joint in a cast for 6 or 8 weeks to no no we want that thing moving straight away do you have any i don't know if you were you probably weren't yet in medicine at that point but can you describe that innovation process that's such a fundamental shift from like all of time to no we're going to do this differently we're going to do it exactly the opposite yeah, and, of what and, we've and ever again, done and again how how quickly was that adopted sort of across the field? And was it a few key communicators, like so somebody like James Andrews, maybe James Andrews himself, that really kind of pushed this, like the pushes these innovations? Well, it was a slow process, as you can imagine, because the people that were giants in the field and people that were respected believed in the old school technique. And so, you know, anytime something new comes out, everybody's a little skeptical. Um, you know, I'll give you a good example. One of the things that used to happen back in the 70s was that Anybody that tore their medial clavicular ligament, their MCL of their knee, which is really common in football when a lineman gets rolled into or somebody gets cut from the side, MCL is probably the, the most common knee injury in football. Those were thought to require surgery. And so, you know, the big big sports medicine doctors like Jack Houston and Don O'Donohue and the guys back in the day that were well-known in the 60s and 70s all fixed those, put them in a cast for six weeks, and it took, you know, six to eight months to get back to play. And, and really what happened is you started having some non-compliant patients and some athletic trainers and people that, that, that didn't, you know, something happened, for instance, they got an MCL strain and they couldn't see the doctor for a while, or, or the trainer noticed that maybe they're getting better. And so they started kind of just by being non-compliant in some cases, figuring out that this didn't have to have surgery, and, and patients started requesting, you know, can we see if this heals without surgery? And, and it really became kind of a slow paradigm shift by, by certain doctors and certain athletic trainers noticing that these things were sticking down and healing well without having to go through the long process of surgery, but it really wasn't adopted over several years because it took, you know, it took several uh, iterations. And it took the right people like Dr. Andrews seeing these these changes and really reporting them and doing research and publishing studies and really making it official before everybody really adopted it. Ter- terrifically interesting. That, that innovation via noncompliance is just fantastic. <laughs> no doubt. So we're talking to Dr. Lyle Kane. He's orthopedic surgeon down in Birmingham. He works with the famed Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. He's also team physician to the University of Alabama. So, Dr. Kane, this is Eric Brother. I want to ask you a question related to that since we're also an analytics show. Um, can you do randomized a B like testing in your field, like you know, uh, you know, if since I'm in the field of marketing and statistics, you know, if we want to see if an ad works, we just randomize populations to see one ad versus another, no problem. But if someone wants to test a hypothesis that restricting blood flow, let's say, actually helps things, can you run? I mean, is it can you ethically or legally run randomized tests where some people get the old procedure, some people might get a new one, and see what happens? Oh, you certainly can, but it's it's difficult in certain patient populations. So. You know, when it's something like BFR, blood flow restriction therapy, that's pretty simple because nobody knows exactly what the 
the benefits are versus the the potential contraindications. I think for for procedures like say an ACL reconstruction, it's really difficult to randomize people because ultimately most of us have a, a pretty strong bias that one procedure works better than another. And to take an elite athlete and put them in the in the process or randomize them into the process where they may get something that we we initially think is inferior is really difficult to do. And so right. most of those randomized studies, even though those are definitely the best statistical studies to do in terms of figuring out the outcomes are done in, in lower level athletes, you know, in, in smaller populations or a lot done in, in, in uh, controlled populations, I would say, which is, you know, a lot of socialized medicine systems like Canada and places where they can, where they have more control over the patient population. It, it's possible in the U.S., but in certain situations, it's very difficult because of the patient demands. Well, could you give us also a sense? You just brought up something, Dr. Kane, which is fascinating to me, which is this idea of what you might do on an elite athlete versus someone else. So, you know, I was a good athlete, but certainly similar to maybe you were better. I know it's not, I was not elite, but I had a rotator cuff surgery uh, done in Mass General when I was in my early 20s, and this was the surgeon for the Celtics. And they said, if you want to continue playing sports, this is the surgery you have to have. But you're not an elite athlete. If you had been an elite athlete, we might have chosen something else, which might have been higher risk. How do you think about that, tailoring the surgery to the eliteness of the athlete? Well, I think that's really the gist of sports medicine, is understanding, as a surgeon, the demands of the individual patient. And so having a knee injury, say, in a, in a college football player that's going to be an NFL player, is very different than having a knee injury in a 40-year-old uh, gentleman that's trying to run and, and participate in triathlon. So... Uh, the demands of the body are so different that sometimes the surgical procedure is totally different. And I think that's that's one thing that really separates uh, doctors that take care of teams in sports medicine from a general orthopedic surgeon is that you know, we, we get to follow the patient all the way through the process. We see him to return to the field. We talk to the athletic trainer. We know the guys that are struggling. We know how long it takes as opposed to just seeing them every, every couple of months in the office. And so mm-hmm. I think it's a mm-hmm. you have a much closer relationship with the players and because of that, you understand their needs, their desires. And, and really, for some of these guys, a college football player, for instance, you know, if they have a knee injury that takes them out for three months, it can be life-changing because they may miss a whole season. They may right. not get drafted. It may change their entire life. Whereas if I have a knee injury and I'm out for three months, it's a really big nuisance and hassle, but it's not really going to change my life long term. Yep. Since Dr. Kenneth Eric Bradlow again, since we're in the world of counterintuitive findings, let me ask you another one. Maybe it is or isn't. Um, Athletes can train better. Athletes are bigger and stronger. Therefore, on the one hand, you could argue they play faster. It leads to more injuries. On the other hand, you could say the body's more prepared. Are injury rates going up and down as people get faster and stronger, or are people's bodies getting stronger and they're competing faster and therefore injury rates are going up? Which one are we seeing? Well, I think it depends on the sport you're talking about, but I think in general injury rates are probably going up primarily because of of the, the culture in the U.S. and around the world really is early single sport specialization. So no matter how much you train, no matter how strong you are, no matter how well conditioned your body is, if you're doing the same movement in the same sport over and over again, you know, for 11, 12 months out of the year, there tend to be a lot of overuse injuries that we see. And that's true whether you're a marathoner or whether you're a baseball pitcher. And so I think, you know, what's happened is is 30 years ago, we weren't as conditioned. We didn't know about, you know, being in shape, say, to play golf, for instance. But we were only playing golf three or four months out of the year, or only playing baseball three or four months out of the year, and we had the other seven or eight, nine months to, to recover. I think sports specialization and overuse has increased injury rates in most of the sports that we see, particularly baseball. But I think it's true across the, 
the entire spectrum because of the fact that we're using the same joints and same movements over and over. So you end up prescribing what we hear from other people, and that is some kind of cross-training and from, from early on, very much against the way many of the big high schools are preparing their athletes. Yes, I, I, we, we believe, and we've done a lot of research on this, and we, we believe that you know, as a, as a child, as an adolescent, even as a high school athlete, it's probably best for your body to play multiple sports or cross-train. The, the people that tend to have the most trouble are the ones that decide in second or third grade they're a baseball player and they do nothing but play baseball mm-hmm. 10, 11 months out of the year for, until they're in high school. Very very few of those people actually make it through the system. Mm. They usually get burned out or hurt before they get to high school. And you know, our, our data shows that the number of throws are important, the number of repetitions are important. And I think it's really something that's, that's understood now by the medical community, but, but it's a competitive situation. As a parent, right. Right. it's very difficult to take your kid out of travel baseball because you feel like you're not giving them the maximum opportunity, the reality is you're probably causing some problems down the road that may keep them from succeeding. Wow. So we're talking to Dr. Lyle Kane, orthopedic surgeon with the Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. He's located in Birmingham. Dr. Kane, you're also a team physician for the University of Alabama. Can you talk to us about how that, what that looks like and what that experience has been like for you? And I suspect that when we think about Alabama, of course, we think about Saban and the football team first, probably the greatest college football coach in the history of the game. But that's a big athletic program. You've got athletes doing all <laughs> kinds of things. You've got men and women. Can you talk to us about what that's been like? Well, it's been a great, great situation for me. You know, growing up here in Birmingham, I went to, I'm an alumni of the University of Alabama, and so I, I've always been a fan and a, and a you know, a supporter of the program. Uh, I had the opportunity through Dr. Andrews to, to take over and, and be part of the medical staff back in 2000. So this is my 19th year mm-hmm. with the university. So I've been through some downtimes in football, and of course I've been through the last 12 years with Coach Saban, which have been great. Um, but it's not just football. We take care of the entire university. So anything from the club, uh, soccer, men's, men's soccer team, rugby mm. team, all the way up to the through the college football team. And it's it's a pretty, uh, I wouldn't call it a full-time job, but it, but it takes a lot of my time up, but I enjoy it. It's, you know, I spend pretty much daily time on the phone with the athletic trainers at the university discussing different athletes and injuries. I usually go down once a week to university, which is about 50 miles from Birmingham, uh, to see athletes of all sports, not just football players. I see the, the gymnasts and softball players and basketball and everybody else and, and treat those athletes and, and go through the process of covering them. We also have a team of primary care sports medicine doctors that are non-surgeons mm-hmm. uh, that do a lot of what we do, but they don't do the surgery, that are down in Tuscaloosa that take care of the day-to-day activities and cover all the, the home events uh, besides football, such as basketball, baseball, and gymnastics. Uh, and it becomes, uh, you know, it can kind of encompass your life, but I, I really, I enjoy it. That's why I got into sports medicine. You know, if I wasn't covering the team, I'd still be at a lot of the games, and so mm-hmm. it's really been fun for me. Can you tell us what sports, we think about football as being the most injury-prone, but, you know, for a while there, people were really talking about women's soccer as being a big issue. As you look across the entire range of college sports, where do you see the greatest injury risk and maybe the greatest opportunities for improvement? You know, I think overall, if you look at, at certain joints, like the knee, for instance, an ACL injury, the highest risk of ACL injuries is certainly in women's soccer. Uh, women's basketball is probably the second. And mm. um, there there are a lot of preventative programs aimed at trying to change that with the way that uh, changing the way that the female athlete cuts or lands from a jump uh, that have had some success but not, not uh, land, landmark-type changes. Um, but overall, if you look at injury rates totally, Gymnastics is probably the hardest on the body. Um, you know, I think the the gymnastics programs start at a youth age with really high intensity training. It's really long and consistent. They they train 
uh, generally every day year round. Mm. And and when you get to the elite level of gymnastics, the level ten and the competitive college and Olympic level, uh, there's a tremendous stress. You can imagine the tumbling moves and all the the things that they do on the bars and 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 from a body standpoint, it's very difficult in the joints. And so many of our gymnasts have issues. Some require surgery, some don't. But it, it's probably the highest injury rate per exposure of any sport out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dr. Kane, we're down just to the last couple of minutes. Can you tell us anything about about injury prevention, sports science? There's so many advances on tracking athletes and understanding the load better and training differently, heterogeneously within a team. What do, you, what do you think the opportunities are there, and how promising is it that we'll see some progress on injury prevention? Well, I think there's a lot of money and time being been spent on that because you know, at different sports, at the professional level, there's huge amounts of dollars lost every year based on injuries and so in baseball specifically you know there's a lot of research looking at at uh, throwing mechanics biomechanics of throwing trying to decrease the stress on the shoulder and elbow uh, we have some new things like elbow braces that, that athletes can wear that can measure the forces across the elbow when they throw we've looked at a lot of different issues with pitch counts and a lot of analytics that you guys talk about trying to determine how do we prevent these high-level athletes from from having a tommy john surgery or having some kind of shoulder problem in other sports like football and basketball some of these GPS monitoring systems uh, we use at the University of Alabama a system called Catapult, which is a GPS-based system that the players wear in their T-shirt or their shoulder pads in every practice and every game. And we can monitor workload. We can monitor acceleration. We can determine if somebody's you know, fatigued or tired, if they're starting to, to lose their energy or lose their burst. And I think it really changes the training regimen to hopefully mm-hmm. prevent overuse in these mm-hmm. athletes. Mm-hmm. Terrifically interesting. Listen, Dr. Kane, really appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. We wish you the best of your work with your work down there in Birmingham. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. That was Dr. Lyle Kane. He's an orthopedic surgeon, um, does sports medicine down there with the Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. He's also the team physician for the University of Alabama, calling in from Birmingham today, talking with us. Terrifically interesting work. That's just an interesting frontier for us in sports analytics and sports science. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. Alan, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Cade Massey in here this morning. Adi Weiner is away. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can get in here with us. Please do give us a shout. one 844 Wharton That's 1-844-942-7866. Or drop us an email. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Hit us up on Twitter. At WMoneyBall is our handle up there. At WMoneyBall. Rolling into another segment. But before we... Hit our next guest, guys. Reactions to our last guest. We didn't have time there at the end of the show. Dr. Lyle Kane, orthopedic surgeon down there in Birmingham. I, I just ha- if, if I could spend two hours with him on the radio, here's what I would do. I would just ask him a bunch of counterfactual questions and see which one of them's actually, like, you know, this idea of, a, well, you know, or, or sorry, I'm mean counterintuitive, which was, you know, he said, restrict the blood flow. Well, that's been the opposite of what every single person yeah. has said. And most people think, well, training is going to reduce injuries. And he seems to say, no, actually, it's going the opposite direction. Yeah. So I would just spend a few minutes thinking about all these, you know, 
beliefs that we have that either improve performance or something else, and it would just be good to get the actual medical opinion yeah, on them. Yeah, no, and I mean, especially the education part out there as far as, like, I mean, I think it seems like the biggest kind of general, like, kind of population-level trend is, is this kind of, like, specialization that, 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 you know, young athletes are going through right now, and it really does seem that, you know, at least in kind of an injury prevention sense, that that is the wrong direction to go But let's in. talk for a minute about his comment as statisticians here, just quickly. What he could what could also be happening is athletes that are able to play tons of sports are the elite athletes yep. and therefore that's mm-hmm. why they yep. make it. So we have to be a little no, careful. But, but there is a they do have a theory and a mechanism no, no, no. of overuse. I do. I yeah, do. Yeah. 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 But you're right. That that that's fair. Um rolling into the our next guest, we're delighted to have Daniel Rappaport on the show. I believe this is Daniel's first time on the show. He's a golf writer and editor at Sports Illustrated. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm delighted to have you. Where are you calling in from today? I'm calling in from New York City, which is where I'm based, uh, where SI is based. So I'm right. in New York. So your Twitter account. So by the way, listeners, you can follow Dan at, at Daniel underscore Rappaport, at Daniel underscore Rappaport. Twitter says you're a big Northwestern guy. What does that mean, big Northwestern guy? And why is a big Northwestern well, guy in New York City? Uh, well, I went to Northwestern. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a big Cats fan of all sports, baseball, I mean, uh, basketball, baseball. Football, uh, golf, soccer, all of it. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention that my dad went to Wharton and so did my sister. So I'm actually <laughs> hey, a, the son and the brother of, of Wharton graduates. And actually all three of my siblings, my older siblings, went to the University of Pennsylvania. Only my sister went to Wharton. But So I also have some pen blood in me. You hold, guys would be happy Hold to on. Know. It sounds like you're the black sheep here. Like you're the only one who didn't <laughs> I, come. It's actually, that's actually correct. Yeah, all three of them and my dad all went to Penn. And then... Uh, wow. I decided that I wanted to sort of do my own thing, go to journalism school, so so Northwestern it was for me. Well, we've heard good things about the Northwestern J School, of course. Um, so you mentioned you mentioned Northwestern golf. Where, where do they have a golf team? Do they, are they competitive? How did you start getting into the golf side of sports? So I always grew up playing golf with my dad. It was sort of our our way of bonding, spending time together on the weekends. I, I was a good high school player. Uh, I played number one on my high school team. It was always like my sport. And uh, I, I kind of sort of tried to play at Northwestern. They do have a golf team, um, and they are a good golf team. Um, a, a couple of uh, touring professionals went there. I think Luke Donald probably being the most prominent one. Matthew Fitzpatrick is now a, a good player in the top 50. Um, I wasn't quite good enough to make it on that team, but I, I kept on playing throughout throughout college. And then uh, once I got the job at SI, you know, I was always trying to write about golf and stuff, but we used to own, uh, SI used to own Golf Magazine and Golf.com. And so all the golf content was sort of outsourced to them, and they handled everything. Um, about a year ago now, they were sold. Um, the publication was sold to Howard Milstein, um, which created a big void in our golf coverage. So I said to, okay. to my boss, I said, look, you know, I, I love this. I'm, I'm passionate about this. And, and about a year ago, I started uh, tackling this golf beat. So we, I missed a step there, or we skipped a step. How did you go from J School to the sports position with SI, great publication? Yeah, so as part of the Northwestern Journalism Program, there's something called the Journalism Residency, which is basically an externship. You take Northwestern on the quarter system, so you take a quarter off um, from school and you go basically intern uh, at one of these places. So I did my JR at Northwestern, I mean uh, at Sports Illustrated, and uh, I guess I did a a decent enough job and and kept, uh, that was the the winter of my senior year, so I went back to school for a couple months, kept in contact, you know, did a couple freelance things and then started at an entry-level position 
um, you know, about a month and a half after graduation mm-hmm. and then sort of worked my way up to where I am now. Mm-hmm. So talk about the initiative you have been leading there at Sports Illustrated. So as Golf Magazine kind of takes away all the coverage you guys have been doing, you've got to kind of create it from scratch. You've got, you're in charge of this golf vertical now at Sports Illustrated. What does that look like? Well, it's tough, you know, because they had a, a, a team of experienced professionals. You know, I think there was like seven or eight of them in the office every day who um, really knew how to handle a golf website and a golf magazine. Um, and so I was, was thrown into the fire and had to learn on the go. Um, and, you know, obviously looked at a, a bunch of different publications, whether it was golf magazine, um, golf channel, they have a good digital presence, golf digest, um, and, and realized what resonates with fans. But it's also a little bit different because those publications are catered to, you know, real um, golf fans, avid golf fans, whereas SI is more of a general sporting public uh, interest okay. magazine and website. So we have to think about what not only what might appeal to really avid golf fans, but what might have a, a wider general appeal. Okay. So I'm always keeping that in mind as well. So what's an example of something that you might emphasize or de-emphasize because you're trying to be a little bit more of a generalist? Um, well, I, we find that you know super technical articles uh, might not resonate as well with our audience. Um, you know stuff about super advanced statistics, which I know we'll get into, which I find fascinating. You know maybe aren't as uh, of interest to someone who only watches you know the Masters, um, and also just the way you explain things. Like I wrote this big distance article about you know, how driving distance is changing the game, and and if I were to writing it for a publication that was like a Golf Digest that you know is catered to people who are already really familiar with golf lingo and lexicon, it would be worded a lot differently. Whereas when you write it for a general sporting public, you have to explain a lot of things that maybe you wouldn't otherwise, or, or, or try and make cross sport comparisons to make things more relatable and palatable for right. you know, a guy who doesn't, isn't, you know, knee deep in golf every single week. So Dan, talk to us about that tension. Running a website as, as, as well as contributing to a magazine, but running a website, you get this real time feedback. You can follow, you know, in great detail, what kind of action each of your pieces get, you know, how long they stay on there. So how do you balance the tension between giving people what they want versus kind of bringing them along a little bit, especially in a sport like golf where there are advances that are changing the game and you want to keep them educated a little bit. So, but that seems like a real tension. It is a real tension and it's, it's actually uh, interesting contrast between magazine and the website. So like you said, with the website, we have the real time analytics about not just how long people are staying, but where they're coming from, how they're accessing the page, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's through search, whether it's through some sort of aggregation service like an Apple News or the Skim. Um, and so we have goals that are, you know, page, <clears throat> page view goals. And, and, and like any other job, you, you have an obligation to meet your goals. Um, so, so what I try to do is we, we try and have um, a base layer of things that I know will either catch on SEO or, um, you know, have a good chance of being picked up by some of these aggregators, do those things as, as sort of the base. And then on top of that, um, can do the sort of pieces that move the conversation along or that introduce new things to the general audience. And one thing that's kind of nice about, about the magazine is um, there's less pressure to meet a certain page view goals. Number one, because it's not as easily accessible. Um, but number two, because you, you have control over what goes in there. And um, you know, once you put it out, that's it. You know, there's no... Right. There's no real-time analytics or anything, so so you have <clears throat> you you have a sort of editorial discretion as to what you want to put into the magazine. Um, and so I thought this distance article was a really good fit for that magazine because um, people don't they want to be shown stuff in a magazine, whereas on the internet, oftentimes they're searching for things they want to read. In a magazine, they're picking it up and they're 
the reader is more open to new experiences. Got it. Daniel, this is Eric Bradlow. Um, I'm a, I, matter of fact, I talk about golf pretty much on every show we do. I'm a huge golf fan, watch it all the time. Can you give us a sense of, is this part of the golden age of golf right now? Obviously, Tiger Woods is back. Phil Mickelson is playing well. There's you know Dustin Johnson just won. There's Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth. And I'm just even naming U.S. players as a great international presence. Or was the golden age of golf like Jack Nicklaus... Arnold Palmer, Lee Trevino, Watson, like how from a media consum- from a consumption standpoint, rating standpoint, interest standpoint, where are we in the history of let's call it modern golf? Okay, so I'll, I'll caution. I'm, I'm I'm on the young side, so I, I don't. <laughs> exactly. I wasn't alive during the Arnold, you know, Jack Nicholas. Arnold, Arnold Palmer, Palmer is Arnold Palmer is not a beverage you get at the turn. He was actually a golfer. <laughs> he, he was a real life. He person. was a real life person. No, no way, you don't say. Um, <laughs> But here's what I will say. For as long as I've been following golf, um, I, th- I think we have a really special blend right now. Um, you know, like you mentioned, the Justin Thomas is Rory McIlroy's, Jordan Spieth, um, the younger guys. I-, I never thought, and I think the vast majority of golf fans never thought we'd get a healthy, competent Tiger competing against these guys. And that's what we have now. Um, we have a-, a Tiger Woods who is healthy, who's back to being one of the five best players in the world, in my opinion, um, competing against these guys who grew up watching him. Um, so, so in that sense, there, there's more star power than I can ever remember. And on the other uh, hand, you know, thanks to Tiger mainly, uh, there's more access than ever before. You know, the, even major broadcasts used to be tape delayed, right? Like you'd, you'd watch the Masters in the 70s and it wouldn't be live. Now you have, you know, PGA Tour Live where they're showing eight hours of coverage every single day. And then you right. have three hours on Golf Channel on thir- Thursday and Friday. And then you have like eight hours of coverage on Saturday and Sunday. And, and the PGA Tour does a really good job. Um, uh, with our social channels of, pr- of promoting the game. So there's more access. So it feels more accessible. It feels more like the other sports where um, the tour realizes it has its fans and it's trying to cater to those fans as opposed to you know, showing them a two-hour broadcast on tape delay. So I think there there's, hasn't been a better time to be a golf fan uh, than right now. I have a lot of analytics I want to dive into, but just to transition to that, um, when I started graduate school in the late 80s, golf was a sport, interestingly, that already had a lot of analytics and people looking at it. In fact, one of my advisors, a guy by the name of Fred Mosteller, wrote one of the early papers on the analytics of golf. How have, do you, when you think of the sport of golf, you know, because Wharton Moneyball came out and that was in the 90s. Golf had been doing analytics for years at that point. Is it your sense that analytics is mature in the field of golf right now? Absolutely. Um, I think every single player um, on the PGA Tour and, and, for that matter, on the European Tour and the Web.com Tour uh, is, is using or leveraging data and analytics in some way. Um, the, the, the sheer quantity of, um, of data that has been made available since the PGA Tour started ShotLink, which is a technology that basically just records every shot, um, every single shot across the season. So every shot is documented, which pr- presents the raw data, and, and you can use it in any, any way that you want to. There are so many different statistics um, that you can create um, and analyze having the luxury of every shot being documented. Um, so you know, the old statistics you know, back in the day used to be like greens in regulation, uh, fairways in regulation, you know, putts per round, and those are, are so misleading in so many ways. We can get into the, the details of that if you like, but um, you know, the stats that guys are using now are incredibly specific, um, incredibly personalized, um, and incredibly insightful to the point where you know, a lot of these guys have consultants, um, guys with statistics backgrounds, guys like you know, Mark Brody, um, who's a, a Columbia Business School professor, 
who works with Rory McIlroy and Jordan Spieth and, and Ricky Fowler on on devising practice plans, how they can help their games, and, and guys like Rich Hunt who works just contracted work for NASA and he he, he helps PJ Tour pros, you know, to look at the data. Um, guys who are professional at analyzing data and helping them pinpoint opportunities for improvement. So I think just as much as any other sport, it's it's really a huge part of the modern player's process right now. Dan, are there examples where this where the guys are playing the game differently because they understand it better because of these data Absolutely. or not? So like in baseball, there are, you know, we can point to very real differences. Basketball, very real differences in the game because data have revealed some things we didn't quite understand before. Is there an example that would illustrate the same dynamic in golf? Yeah, absolutely. So here's a good one. So the way that players play par fives. So the old um, sort of conventional wisdom was if you could put yourself, um, you know, 110 yards, 100 yards from the hole uh, for your third shot, you hit a wedge up there close um, and, and make make the putt for birdie or at worst um, make par. Um, but then I was having a conversation with Mark Brody as part of this article that I wrote. and He was saying that the data showed that actually – instead of laying up into the fairway and prioritizing having a look from the fairway on your third shot, um, what leads to lower scores empirically is getting as close as possible to the green. You know, so even if you're being 30 yards away in the rough or in a bunker, um, leads to a lot better scores than being 100 yards away um, in the fairway. Hmm. So you're seeing guys now go for the green a lot more often. And, and that's sort of a general theme, which is the closer the better. Um, guys are, hitting, are playing much more aggressive, particularly on par fives. Um, hitting hitting driver more often, going for it basically un- unless they absolutely can't. Um, and this is something that surprised the statisticians and also really surprised the players. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark, Mark was telling me a story about he was talking to, I believe it was Justin Thomas, um, and just at the U.S. Open. And Justin Thomas said, if I had 10 feet for birdie on every par five I played the entire year, would I, would I rather have that, the, the result from, from that scenario, where I have 10 feet for birdie, or would I rather have my scoring average from par fives last year. And I think Justin Thomas expected the answer to be 10 feet for birdie. You know, you're going to make 60% of those, whatever it is, 50% of those, and then make no bogeys and make pars at worst. I think he expected, like, if I would accept having 10 feet for birdie on every hole. And the answer was actually his scoring average from par fives the year before was better. Wow. He didn't have 10 feet for birdie every hole. Where sometimes they have 50 feet for eagle. Right. Sometimes they have, you know, two feet for birdie. Sometimes they have eight feet for par. Um, so I think there's just, every, they've had, everyone's had to reimagine these these classical uh, accepted notions or axioms that, you know, hit the fairways and hit the greens and then play as, as opposed mm-hmm. to uh, now where I think everyone's playing a lot more aggressive because of what the data shows. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Daniel Rappaport. Daniel is golf writer and editor at Sports Illustrated. He recently oversaw the launch of SI.com's golf vertical. He's in charge of SI.com's golf content. He's a Northwestern guy living in New York City. Dan, the article that caught our attention is the one you've been referring to, which is the the one you did on the length of the of the player's game and how it's changing golf. The great distance debate, however, increasing driving distance is changing golf from earlier this month. Can you tell us what you found in that article and what kind of reaction you've gotten to it? Yeah, so it was it was a hugely educational for me and 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 super interesting as a golf nut myself. Um, it, it was a debate that was raging on the you know the the sort of subculture of golf Twitter. You know, are our courses being rendered obsolete by the modern player, the modern swing, the modern equipment, the modern golf ball? Um, and and it was something that was sort of very inside golf. And and as I mentioned before, I felt like there was really could be general interest if it was made more palatable for the uh, general sports fan. Um, so I, I dove into the numbers and I started talking to a bunch of different experts about 
um, you know, not just wh- why it's happening, um, because I think that's interesting. You know, how are players hitting the ball further? The answer being they're stronger than ever, more flexible than ever. Uh, the instruction is better than ever. They have better metrics than ever. Uh, equipment is better than ever. The ball is better than ever. So that was one aspect of it that I found particularly interesting. But the other one is, is what's the effect it's having on, on the game? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how, how is it changing the way the game is played? How is it changing what's rewarded in the game? And I, and I think that's actually Adam, the most interesting Adam, let me thing. jump in real quickly just to set the stage as you make that transition. You published a figure in the, in the, in the article you wrote which compares the average driving distance from 1980 to recently, the last couple of years. And you and you show just to give people a sense of this the scope of the change. The average drive distance in 1980 was 257 yards. Bradlow probably hits his three wood 257 yards. So that's moved now. The average drive distance now is almost 300 yards. It's 295. So it's a huge jump off the tee, which is going to make a dramatic difference, as we all know, makes a dramatic difference in how challenging the game is, unless something else happens. So that kind of sets the stage for your next question. How has that changed the game? So what's so uh, here's a stat that I like to use. Um, so in 1980, the correlation between driving accuracy and scoring average was 53%. Okay? The, the, the correlation between driving distance and scoring average was 13%. So driving accuracy was a much greater predictor of, of a player's scoring average and thus you know, their world ranking or how many tournaments they win than driving distance. In 2017, the, dri- the correlation between driving accuracy and scoring average was down to 12%. And the correlation between driving distance and scoring average was 44%. Oh, that's beautiful. Now, that's amazing. So, so now driving distance is a much, much, much bigger predictor of success than driving accuracy. And this is, that's sort of indicative of a larger theme, which is you know, being accurate uh, while nice is no longer necessary, uh, especially with the driver, to be uh, you know, one of the best players in the PGA Tour. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you look at the, top, the best players in the world, Dustin Johnson, Rory McIlroy, John Rahm, you know, these guys hit the ball are, are some of the longest hitters on tour, and 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 the the thing about long hitters and why it's, it pays off so much more than it used to is back in the day there were there were always long hitters, but back in the day the the, the equipment the drivers weren't as as technologically advanced and the ball wasn't as, it, it spun a lot more. So what happened was these guys who were hitting the ball um, you know, more longer were were way less accurate. Right. And this is where we're off the planet. Right? So there was a real <laughs> right. uh, drawback of, of hitting the ball far. You know, you'd hit it far, but your dispersion would be super wide to the point where when you miss a fairway, you weren't just missing a fairway, you were hitting it in the trees. You know, or you were hitting it out of bounds, or you were hitting it in the water. Now they, the, the technology is so good that it allows these long hitters to, to swing with reckless abandon and to um, their misses are, are not magnified. You know, they're, they're small misses. So if they're missing the fairway, it's only a couple yards off the fairway. And if, if they're in the rough, you know, you'd rather be in the rough with 110 yards and in the fairway with 175 yards, it's just like the the math like bears it out. It's just a, a statistical fact. Great. Two points. Two um, points of clarification, real quickly. When we, we we quoted your driving distance, but that's really just a proxy for hitting the ball long, no matter what the club. So these guys these guys are just always the long hitters are always going hitting a club or two less than the average guy. So let's just make that clear. So it's not just off the tee; they're hitting their mid irons longer. They're hitting everything longer. The, the, right, and the, when you're hitting a shorter club into a green, it comes in from higher. Right, so you're able to. For sure, closer to the flag, and there's less variance because it's not going to roll as much when it lands on the green. Right, right. Um, I want to do one other clarification. This is twice you've mentioned this thing that just it's just better to be closer. Just better. You'd rather be 30 yards and in the rough than 70 yards in the middle of the fairway. I, I'm going to guess that one of the reasons that's true. It's not just that it's the rough is not quite as punitive as you might think. It's that 
Sometimes you're 30 yards and in the rough, but sometimes you're actually on the green. So you, you're, you gotta, you're capturing the benefits of the right tail of that distribution as well. And it turns out that the punitive aspects of the left tail maybe aren't as bad. Certainly they don't overcompensate for the benefits of the right. Exactly. Okay. That's a really important clarification. It's not like you know you'd, if you're always going to miss in a really terrible spot, then it's not preferable. But And that was one of the things. So when my conversation with Mark Brody, the Columbia Business School guy, he basically said that the penalty – for missing uh, a fairway, generally on an average PGA Tour, um, is about 0.1 stroke. So if you're the exact same distance from the hole, um, you know, in the fairway versus in the rough, uh, it, it's about 0.1, maybe 0.2 strokes on an average. And, and sometimes that changes. You know, in the U.S. Open or different tournaments, I think if you watched the Ryder Cup this year, you saw a course with really, really gnarly rough, and, and the penalty there can be anywhere up to 0.6 strokes. So it, the strategy changes based on the penalty right. on a certain golf course, and that's right. something that they work with with statisticians. But so basically, what Mark, what Mark said was, for a guy like Dustin Johnson or Bubba Watson to sacrifice his distance advantage, he would have to miss about full five or six more fairways per round than the average player, and that's just not happening. Right? They yeah. Maybe maybe one or maybe two more fairways. So there's a huge advantage to hitting the ball far. That's why you know, and we can get into you know strokes gained, which has been a really revolutionary statistic in golf. The, the top 10 players um, in strokes gained off the tee, which is a metric that measures the quality of your, of your tee shots compared to your peers. So basically saying, who are the best players off the world? Who, who off the tee? Who gets the most advantage off their tee shots? The average rank of the top 10 players, uh, the top 10, the, their average distance rank was 13. So it's, it's you know, the, the, the longest guys are the best drivers of the golf ball. That's what this is showing. And I think that has to do with technology and also, like you said, golf course setup, where the, the rough is not as penal on an average PGA Tour uh, course, as a lot of people might think. So, Daniel, this is Eric Bradlow again. I want to get back to the point that you just made about average. So we talked about it in the first half hour. Obviously, Tiger Woods' goal, certainly at this point of his career, is to win majors. So he, you're, he's not, he doesn't even care. I just, he cares, but he doesn't really care about the non-heavy penalized courses. So you mentioned a bunch of players. John Rahm, zero majors. Dustin Johnson, great golfer, just won his 20th, one major. So how about the following theory? These big hitters are great to win the WGC Mexico City, the Honda Classic, the Dubai Open. Rory McIlroy hasn't won a major in five years. So all the big hitters you've mentioned, they're winning tournaments, but they're not winning the ones that penalize you for being, you know, have high variance. So what would be your reaction to that is that there's different kinds of courses, but if you want to win the majors, you better drive it accurately. I think I think there's I haven't seen like the numbers and it would be really interesting to see a statistical analysis of performance in normal tour events versus performance in majors and see if if the numbers change about who the best drivers of the golf ball are and I'm sure it would be different but you know I counter your point by saying how about Brooks Koepka you know he's a, another bomber he's won three majors over the past two years you know Dustin Johnson has only won one major but he probably should have three or four if he could not free putt you know the 72nd green at Chambers Bay from 10 feet right um, so these guys are putting themselves in position to win you know I don't think there's a, a huge bubble Watson is a guy who who has you know won the Masters twice and so yeah I mean I think there are definitely certain golf courses that that fit to certain players but you know, on the grand scheme of things and it's, it's also hard to judge for the majors because they're so infrequent right I mean there's only four per year um, so it's not a huge data set and it is a specific data set so maybe it is you know, worth looking at as sort of a separate entity than the normal courses but. Um, yeah, I, I think that the, the longer players are still at a, at a bigger advantage, even that, in the majors. That's interesting. It is. It is always a challenge. I mean, data are a challenge. Power is a challenge. But we're getting enough data where we're beginning to be able to say something about how majors differ. And I know that the big golf betters in the world are digging into that because the 
ability to get money down and not move markets is much better in the majors than otherwise. And so they really want to know whether those things are different. Dan, speaking of Tiger, let's hear a little bit of your take on that. You wrote a piece coming out of this Mexico City tournament last weekend about his putting troubles. We were talking about this at the top of the show. What goes into putting troubles and why is it that these old guys, it seems like the old guys run into these kinds of issues, but that might just be a story. Maybe everybody runs into it sometimes. Are analytics helpful on the putting green? I mean, they're so helpful with the rest of this game, but in what way are guys leaning on these consultants to help with the putting game, if at all? Absolutely, they're leaning on them to help with with the putting game. Um, you know, I was—I hate to keep bringing up Mark Brody, but he really is like the. Bill we, we we love Brody. He's been on the show lots of times. We're a big fan of Mark Brody. Yeah. So so he was talking to me about his experience with Luke Donald, who is sort of the antithesis of the power player. He he got to number one in the world um, in 2011, um, despite ranking I think it was like 141st in driving distance. So really, an exception rather than the rule of this you know, longer is better. And uh, he was working with with Luke Donald. I think it was like 2011 or 2012, and. And they were trying to figure out, you know, why his his puttings, uh, why his putting statistics had dropped. He he was one of the best putters in the world, and then he was having um, some some problems. And so what they did is they they looked at all the data and they found that there was a problem with um, you know his his 15 to 16 foot putts. And and Luke was thinking, you know, maybe I'm not making enough of these, or you know what the issue is. And, and the data showed that he was hitting them just too hard. He had too many four footers. Um, and five footers coming back for par, and so they started working on devising a drill where um, instead of a cup, there's like a, a, a white thing that simulates a cup, and he's trying to stop the ball between you know, six six inches and, and twelve inches past the hole. Um, so there's certain insights like that that you can find where you know, and, and also with shot like everything is so um, is, is, is documented that you can be so specific with things, so you can find that maybe you know you should really struggle with six footers right to left downhill. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the putt that really, really bothers you. And that wouldn't show up in the past. You know, you would just have this putts per round or putts per green and regulation statistics, and you wouldn't have any idea why that's happening. You know, what mm-hmm. am I good at? What am I bad at? So maybe you find that, you know, your real uh, kryptonite is, is downhill six foot right to left putts. Right. That's what you're going to practice. That's what you're going to drill. Um, and so just the plethora of data that's available to these guys, are, are it, it, makes, it gives them the ability to really, really make their practice extremely specific okay um and, and yeah sorry no 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 fine good um dan all the data you've talked about so far have been kind of outcome data and of course there was another kind of data revolution in golf before all these shot link data and that was the ability to kind of wire somebody up and diagnose their swing analyze yeah. you know d- d- specify describe their swing in great detail we've seen this really change things in baseball for example so in the last couple of years, we now talk about exit velocity and, and swing, launch, angle. swing launch angles and things that, that really change, but it's, but it's all from a process perspective. So, so yeah. where, are you, where, where has the process data gone in golf, and what role is it playing now, and is there any marriage of the two? And How, how, how should we even think about that? Absolutely. Absolutely, there's marriage of the two. Um, so in 2000, I think 2003, maybe 2004, there was an invention of something called TrackMan, um, which was invented by Danish, Danish radar engineers, um, which basically quantifies every aspect of the golf swing from you know, the, the, the angle of attack, whether it's you know, you're hitting down on the ball, you're hitting up on the ball, um, the path of the club, whether you're swinging from in to out or out to in. So if, if the ball's spinning right to left or left to right, uh, measures your ball speed, measures the launch angle, measures the spin rate on the ball, measures the, uh, you know, the, the carry distance, how far it's going in the air um, and how far it's, 
going uh, in general. And you'll see if you if you go to a PGA Tour event, you know, especially on Tuesday or Wednesday, you'll see basically every player have this TrackMan device, like a, a square, a, a really thin square that they prop up behind the ball. Um, so they'll dial in. They'll know exactly how far an eight iron is going um, this week. And I, I talked to a couple of tour guys who were playing in this Mexico tournament that was 8,000 feet up in the air. So for the first two days, that was right. basically all they were doing. Getting calibrated. How far, mm-hmm. how far the ball is going. You really have no idea. You know, these guys are so dialed in at sea level. I mean, you take them to an altitude and every day, you know, if, if it's spinning more, there's a bigger difference between altitude and, and sea level. Um, and, and the marriage between the two, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if maybe you find that um, on the back nine, and you can also, the statistics are as specific as you can look at back nine performance versus front nine performance. So, so maybe you're finding that uh, toward the end of rounds, uh, you're having a real problem missing your drives to the right. So when, you, when you're fatigued a little bit or, or under pressure, you're missing your drives to the right. So then you can go pull up your track man, figure out what's produce, producing that right miss. So maybe you're finding that you're swinging too far out to in, mm-hmm. or maybe you're finding that the spin rate is too much. Okay. And, you can then, and then you can add a third element with the equipment, which is all adjustable. So maybe you can find that to, to combat this right miss, you're going to close the club face a little bit so you can change your club face. Or you, know, you want to bring the height down a little bit because in the wind you're really struggling to hit fairways. So you want to bring the launch angle down to sort of penetrate through the, through the, uh, the, I, I, uh, the wind would, better. And then you can... I would love to talk to a professional golfer one of these days about the decision to adjust these deficiencies, if you will, via equipment versus tweaking your swing. You know, you spend your whole life trying to get the swing just right, and at what point do you say, eh, I'm just going to change the club face because I don't, they can't quite get that one right. But listen, Dan, we're, we're going to let you go. But before we let you, one, thanks for the time. We really appreciate you spending some time with us. Love what you're doing. We wish you the best with the new initiative there at SI.com. But before you go, in the next half hour, we're going we're gonna to end with what we always do around here in the football offseason, which is an over-under segment. And one of our over-under segment questions for sure is going to be, Tiger Woods majors this year, 2019 majors for Tiger Woods, and the market line seems to be, market line being what's in the room here, uh, 0.5. So we're going to put you on the spot and say, do you think if we give you a market line of 0.5, you're going to be over or under on the number of majors that Woods gets into? We, you just said one of the top five players in the game. Where are you yeah. on our over-under? Under. Because even if you're the even, even if you're the you know even if you're the number one player in the game, the fields are so deep now that I'm not sure if you gave me Dustin Johnson 0.5 majors, I would take over. You know, it's just a it's just a numbers thing, right? If there are 50 guys who are legitimately capable of winning a major, you know, the odds of one guy winning one are are low. All right, um, you're you're, you're and, one and, of us. You're one of us, Dan. We're gonna have to give yeah. you back. Talk in our language. Listen, man, we'll let you go. We wish you the best with the work. Thank you for calling in this morning from New York City. Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Dan Rappaport, golf writer and editor at Sports Illustrated. He oversaw the launch of SI.com's Golf Vertical. He's in charge of SI.com's golf content. Northwestern guy living in New York City. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Whole crew in here for the final half hour. Audie Weiner just walked in. It's good to be here. Glad to have you, man. Always good to see you. Got the whole crew in here. We're, we're some combination of us, anyway, are here every Wednesday morning. In fact, Eric's carrying the show next week. Spring break around here. Three of us are traveling. Eric is here. He's got a whole crew lined up. It's going to be a very interesting show. Come back and join us then. Right now, we got Shane, Eric, Adi, and Cade in here rolling into the last half hour. You guys can join 1 844 Wharton, 1 844 942 7866. Give us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com or hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyball. 
is our handle there. We take questions and observations off of Twitter. We also take over-under suggestions, which we're going to get to shortly in a kind of an expanded segment. One thing before we get there, one thing that jumped out to me from the rundown from Matt. Matty Datz, our producer, gives us a rundown each Wednesday, keeping us keeping us relatively well-informed. Uh, there's this thing about a, a new wonder lick, essentially. So the NFL Combine is right now, starting today or yesterday. I mean, it's going to run for four or five days. March 1st, I think it starts, so Friday. No, it starts before Friday. They're doing things before then. Don't we have our There's the data bowl at the Combine for example. Yeah, the data, data bowl, that's today. That, that may be today. As a matter of fact, everybody gathers in, in I mean, the entire league, literally the entire league the, in terms of the, the front office and coaches are down there. But th- there's a nice piece in here off of philly.com, newspaper here locally, about a Hofstra grad student who put together a new kind of wonder league, trying to get sports-specific intelligence. What is it that identifies the Peyton Mannings, separates the Peyton Mannings from the Orion Leafs? And apparently getting some purchase in the NFL, among other places, on using this thing. So we might need to talk to Scott Goldman mm-hmm. down the road, but it's that time of year where they're, the assessment season in football is in high school. And, and, and thank goodness. Our long national nightmare is over. Football's back, right? (laughs) The long off off season's over. (laughs) We can start talking about it again. On your TV this weekend, 40-yard dashes. (laughs) Eric probably knows when the running backs are on versus when the defensive tackles. I do, but I mean, the part that was interesting to me is, well, two things happened in the 40-yard dash recently, of course. One was... No, no, no. Of course. We were talking about one last night, which was interesting. No, no, no. no. What, What happened was, of course, Usain Bolt in basically a pair of work shoes without any warm-up and not even athletic gear on, particularly, ran a 4-2 and broke the combine record. What? Yeah, this was about two weeks ago. (laughs) Really? No, well, it was was at the Super Bowl. I mean, you say Bolt's like the fastest human ever. No, but at the Super Bowl... You know, they have, just for fans, yeah. you could just run the 40. So Usain Bolt was there. He was dressed in, I mean, not running shoes at all, just regular shoes. And he was dressed in like a... I know, don't... I and mean, he, pers- was, he, was, he didn't even take off his warm-up gear, and he I, ran a 4-2. I don't, I don't think my performance would degrade much <laughs> using my regular <laughs> shoes versus running shoes either. So this seems very natural to me. But I, yeah. You know, I'm going to tell you, I'm actually somewhat surprised because, first of all, Usain Bolt is... is his triumph is in the last 50 yards, Correct. not the first 50. And the, the, these runners are spectacular. And the absolute best runners who are in the combine, although they're young, they really are, some of them, you'd think, Track are, runners, are, are world-class yeah. sprinters. So I'm, I'm, uh, so that's the part that I am found a little bit. I'll just remind you guys, Shane Bolt won like four yeah, gold yeah, 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 medals but in the 100-meter sprint. The other, sprint. I mean, the other but, thing so, that's so, always hold on. What I love about it is... We we're not calibrated for forty times outside of professional, yeah. you know, or at least prospects to play NFL. We all we're really calibrated for those guys. You know, four three is exciting and five one is slow. And, but we need some more context. Yeah. And so give us track stars. And now let's give like let's put you know let's put Bradlow out there and let's get the regular yeah. guys out. This is my my fantasy about how teams get introduced in the NBA is that you also put like the average size guy. At center court, so that we can all, we can all keep in mind <laughs> right. how unusually sized these these guys are. Well, so I was going to make two comments. One is, of course, it always brings up also when they when Usain Bolt ran the four two, it always brings up they go back to Bo Jackson like they do every year, because you know again when he was a track star. As a matter of fact, he talks about the time where he ran uh, at Auburn. They had him run the forty um, like in his pro day, and he said, "Look, I'm only going to run it once." And what the only request I have is, since I have to get to track practice right now, and this gym isn't big enough, 
open up the door so when I, I won't have enough time to slow down. I'm just going to run as fast as I can and then run straight to track practice. <laughs> and so by hand, the hand timers, this is documented now, by the way, the hand timer said he ran a 3.9, but the official time he ran was 4.09. So that's the fastest ever actually recorded by a football player was Bo Jackson on his pro day, which he said, I'm going to run this once, just open up the door because I'm running straight to the track. You're saying that the official time was faster 409. than the hand time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, the official no, time the, was the slower. Hand, the hand time was, was the slower. Slow, was, the, the hand time was, was below faster. 4. Oh. But his official time was 4.09, and that's the fastest recorded. So, and he's, so, by the way, his comment was... I weigh 227 pounds. He goes, I don't understand why these guys are so slow. <laughs> well, you know, so, I think in the 40, a lot of it is you need muscle mass to accelerate rapidly the way they do. And, oh, and Bo, Bo Jackson was just, I mean, he was just beyond exceptional in, in so many ways. And this story just just makes that even more clear. So, by, by the way, at the Combine, it's just sport for these scouts because, of course, there's the official time. It's on the scoreboard. So you don't need to click your manual, your hand timing. But everybody, every, every scout in the stands, they're all sitting together. They're all sitting there. Teams are sitting in clumps of scouts, and everybody's got their clock. And it's sport. It's sport. And they actually start heckling each other whenever they deviate. So you kind of everybody writes yep. down their numbers. But, and some guys are really fast. Some guys are slow. Some Sometimes one will click early, and he'll throw everybody else well, off. <laughs> so let me let me build up an analytics question for you guys around that. So now that we have better data, I don't mean about the track times, but let's say we have motion data, like you talked about the NFL uh, challenge that your uh, students are participating in. Um, faster players may create space for other players. And now we have the opportunity to measure that. So do you think the importance of just pure raw speed because of now we can measure its ancillary effects on other players, may actually become more important in the game. Because now people's like, well, this guy can spread out the field. Well, now we can measure when, you know, someone that runs a 4-2 versus a 4-4 is running at wide receiver, we can see the space that he's creating on the field. Except and, I, and I, I mean, I think I'm just it's, asking a question. Yeah. I think and even, even more detailed, it's, it, I, I'm hearing that speed is kind of multifaceted and that you've got right. this kind of acceleration sort of component to it. Explosion. Versus the yeah. uh, ability to kind of maintain it over like a you know, 40-yard distance or something like that. Yeah, I think that multifaceted aspect of it will, will obsolete 40 times precisely because of the tracking yeah. data. We're going to understand better what actual playing speed is like and what playing speed matters, and it's going to, it's going to trump 40-yard dash. Yep. I just meant, does the increased ability to measure things actually, maybe it's more nuanced view of speed will come out of it, but also in some sense it could be, it's not just about how fast you run, but again, it creates opportunities. Like in soccer, we were just talking about in the last couple of weeks, which For was... Sure. But pl- what but what kind of speed does it? Exactly. Yeah, what yeah. Kind of speed? Well, can I, you know, so I think the speed... At the combine is going to be obviated by tracking data, which will be taken and accumulated at, at, at the at the games. But what other things go on at the combine other than running and what and oh. catching? So what and and what and and, what, and they're different from the things we measure. Good, yeah, for sure. So one thing they on the field they 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 do all kinds of drills. So um, in different position groups, they work out as position groups. So different position groups do different drills. But you know they'll just put them through. When you go to pro day or you go to the combine, you'll see coaches put them through drills. They'll move them this way, move them that way. They'll run three cone drills, which are and they do um, Tr- trying to assess lateral speed. Yeah, lateral. So it's not front back speed; it's side to side. Do speed. they know what they're looking for? I mean, is it clock based? Well, they, oh everyone, yeah, everyone yeah. knows what is going to be run. And so they, they train on each of these things. It's very it's very regimented. And then they do you know they do lifting, they do jumping, very basic you know off field kind of off field kind of physical stuff. And then they do interviews. 
and they'll do interviews in what they call a train station where they do kind of one-on-one sit-down, kind of quick things. And then they do the big, they sit down in a hotel room with the entire staff, like all the coaches and all the personnel guys will be in there and they'll have 10 minutes. I think it's 10 or 15 minutes. And they'll, they just kind of roll them through. They'll have, they'll have all 10 top defensive line prospects, interior lineman prospects. They'll roll through there and a horn will sound and then they rotate. Somebody so, else so Kate, in. have you ever been in the room when, when this happens? I have. I have. It's wow. fun. It's great fun. <laughs> um, it's, you wonder, you know, it, you, you can see the challenge of the job, but you can also see kind of the fun of the job. And you really appreciate the work that these guys go to. Um, all right. So we have uh, a long list. So why don't we switch to our final segment, courtesy of Mr. Dion Simpkins. It's Wharton Moneyball's Over Under. That's Dion sitting in. Can't you feel it's different? A little vibe, different vibe from Dion sitting in for Danielle Bruno here in the last half hour. Surprise us. Eric Bradlow, you got a long list of over unders. We're, we're newly into the 2019 over under season. Leaderboard just beginning to take shape. What do you got? Well, I, I don't know even if we're going to have time for all of them, but let's start with a topic we haven't spent much on, but it's good that Adi's here. Let's talk about baseball. So let's start with the first one on our list here, which is the average annual salary for Bryce Harper, who's yet to be signed. Uh, the number listed here is, and I'll start with Adi, and we'll rotate who goes first. So we'll start with Adi on this one. $32.5 million for Bryce Harper. Average annual salary. And just for Arenado, got $32.5 million. Machado got thirty. So where do you see Bryce Harper? Over, under, 32 and so a by half. The way, by, the, by the way, I want credit. I now know that Arenado is a third baseman for the Colorado Rockies. How's that? Yes, indeed. Nicely done, dude. So, uh, so Arenado got thirty-two-five. He's an extraordinary defender. He plays in Coors, so he's a little inflated. But I'm going to go over for Harper. I think he's going to get a shorter deal than he wanted, but at a higher okay. Shane salary. Jensen. I have the same logic. I think Harper. The way this is finally going to get done is he's going to take a slightly shorter deal than Machado, maybe like seven or eight years, and it's going to be a larger annual value. Okay, Massey. So you guys are short the Phillies on this? Do you think the Phillies are going to come down? Because the Phillies are the ones that are offering the longest contract. And they're like right? ten years, three hundred million, which we right. put it under. Right. So right. I think maybe um, I think he's po- sticking on that. Yeah. So it, we're, it's be really interesting to see. Play. Everyone thought the Phillies were going to be the favorites here, and now the yeah. Dodgers jumped in. They want a really short term deal. Um, I'm, I'll, you know, it's hard whenever everyone goes one direction not to lean the other out of interest, if nothing else. So I'm going to go under and kind of pull for the fills to get the long term deal. Okay, and I've, I'll go last. I'm going to go over, and that's because um, I'm going to compound my other lost pick where I said 13 and a half years total for Machado and Harper. The only way that's going to happen is if he takes that Dodger three year deal for 50 million a year. So I might as well go no, down and play. You could have hedged. You could have hedged. No, nah, but I'm not doing that. See, I play high <laughs> variance to win. I'm not going to hedge. Yes, I'm going to yes. go 0 and 2 or 2 yeah. and 0 we here. Know and I'm going over. No, Bradlow plays to win. <laughs> exactly. And I'm playing to win. So I'm going for the over. All right, let's go to another one in uh, baseball, which I'll start with Shane, but although really our mm-hmm. Hall of Fame experts could go to this. Um, <laughs> so if we look at the number of years on the ballots that Bruce Bochy, three-time manager, three-time world champion manager, and CC Sabathia, we could argue whether he's, you know, probably a Hall of Famer. If I add up the total number of years that they will be on the Hall of Fame ballot before they get in, six and a half years. I'm taking the over. And it's mostly because of what you just said. Sabathia... Probably a Hall of Famer, but that is something that I do not think is obvious. And I think non-obvious candidates take longer than, you know, I, I would I would expect Sabathia himself to kind of power most of this. He'll be at least on, I think he'll be, I have to be four on or five years. four or five years. Okay, Kate Massey. What I want to do is do whatever Adi says. This is what I, it's not but fair, that's why, I can't go after no, Adi. No, we rotate who <laughs> goes when. Adi's not giving his opinion yet. I said plenty of smart things you could build off I'm of going, too, Yeah, I'll Kate. go with what Shane said. I'll go over. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Shane, Shane hit the ball out of the park. 
Hold on, you're going. I know, but it's it's it, it's 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 done. I think we're all going to go over on this. So I think I think Sabathia himself is going to go six to seven years. Oh, yeah, wow. so I'm going to okay. I'm going to go okay. over it as well, okay. just yeah. because of Sabathia. I think Bochi actually. Yeah, I think he could hit, be first. Ballot. He could be first ballot or certainly one yep. or two years mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. And you're going over as well. Absolutely, I think that's the. You know, it's interesting. I think this is one that maybe is a, is, a, is more variance. But if you look at pitchers like Messina, I think that's where where Sabathia sort of lines up. And uh, he'll you get know, in, and, but and it's going to be. I personally think he deserves to get in, but it's going to require. I think the writers a little bit reevaluate what a Hall of Fame and, kind and of let, pitcher looks like. And let me like. just disagree with you on that respect. His peak performance, if you, you know, whatever that Jaws number is, and that seven, yeah. his peak performance was better than Mike Messina's peak performance. True. And so I don't think he's like Messina. I don't. I think he may end up being on the voting like Messina, but let's be clear. His he was the best pitcher in his league for a period of time, and the knock against Messina is he was very good for a very long time. But I, I think Sabathia is different in that respect. But I think Sabathia didn't have the close, the great close he that didn't. Messina did. He absolutely didn't. All right, let me. I'll move on to golf just because we we had Daniel Rappaport on. We'll go quickly on to golf. So we have two over unders. We might as well do them together. We'll start with Cade Massey. So we have Dustin Johnson and Tiger Woods. Let's take. Let's go. No, no, one. Let's do the union. Let's change it. We decided Bo- to revise both it. together. Yeah, the union. Okay. So. Dustin Johnson and Tiger Woods over under one major. So you could push. Oh, no, 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 we were adjusting the line. It was going to be one and a half? five between them. Oh, point five between them. Okay. Yeah, much, so much tougher. That's fine. We'll like, do every, that. Everybody was going to take the right, under. So, so Dustin Johnson and Tiger Woods, total number of majors this year, point five. Under. Under. I think it's a really tough line, though. I'm so, I want to yeah. go over, but I got to go base rates. I got to go base rates. It's a big field. Yeah, and I, I'm, same logic. I was. I, I, I agree it's it's tougher, but I'm going to stay under as well. So how many majors are there? There are four. So there's four. <laughs> okay. Four. We should have done that as an over-under. Over-under, 3.5 number of majors. There's four. And, and by the way, Adi, just to give you all some clues, Sorry, none, of them, none of them have been played yet either. All right. So none that, of them have been played that yet. That I knew. Um, there's so, the Australian. Okay. But it's no, not. No, the know, Australian's not a golf major. <laughs> Stop it. I'm just going after, after Kate on this round. So I'm following them. So what, what over under there? I'm agreeing with them under. We're gonna have to start writing down independent answers, and you have to write. Yeah, it yeah, out I'm, I'm, I'm taking the over on this one. Oh wow! I'm taking the over. Of course you. Are. I'm taking the over. I, I do have a revision to our scoring system that reflects the fact that we're actually statisticians, but I'm not sure we have time to dissect it now. Give us the short version. The short version is that, is that you you essentially have to estimate the the, the the difficulty of a of a of a pick, and that has to go into the scoring system. Okay. And there's a standard way to do that. Um, we can estimate the the probability of being right, and get basically get a uh, points based on the difficulty mm, okay. and that's the standard it's almost like a gambling rule if if we were betting there would be a real line there and we get money back based on how hard it was so when all four of us go the same thing we're all right well that shouldn't be a a, a uh, there's no points changing hands necessarily it doesn't in our system anyway but it'd be low scoring so if it's two and two you get less than but if you go against yeah, I the guess field we, we indirectly really, get uh, that, but that in that it, we indirectly get that in that if it's a really easy one then we're all going to go the same way the, and but the therefore, trouble is that introduces that introduces decision decision judgment so, uh, no absolutely. no no it introduces strategy of course but, but we have to decide whether we want that to be part of it or whether That's we true. just want a truth Each, revealing yeah. a truth revealing there's one, one of the great things about preserve the sanctity of the over under but there's something very nice about Seriously, <laughs> you know one of the things about As statistics, someone that's so dead and last, I don't think there's any sanctity to this. But go but ahead. Adi. At some point, we have to discuss what's called Stein's paradox in statistics, which is very, very important. Which is when you're doing a, uh, an estimate for one task, 
you actually have different efficiency and different uh, optimality properties than when you're doing it for a bunch of tasks. Yeah, good. And so the, if you're scoring on the on what's called the, the multivariate or the mean squared error of a bunch of means, you do things differently than when you're just scoring on yeah, one or good, two. It's good. the fundamental uh, theorem in statistics. And, and it probably has applicability beyond our over-under. So it we sure should does. take yeah. out some time. But back to the over-under. All right. So let's go now to another one of our favorite sports, the NBA. So we've got three here. Let's start with this. One that's you know as basic as they get. So point five. NBA titles for the Warriors this season. I will start with myself since we've all gone first except for me. I'm going to go under. So I, I'm now not picking the Warriors. So I am going I am going to go under. I like the uh, I'm going under. Either way, under. Yeah. <laughs> no logic. Hottie Weiner. <laughs> Just visceral. Yeah. You got to go somewhere. Hottie, yeah. you got to go. Uh, the, uh, I'm going under because I'm tired of the Warriors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I have no data. It's hard. You know, it's a good under, over under. I think they're about ultimately 50-50. The line probably says they're a little less. Okay. Because they've got to survive. They're, mm-hmm. you know, they're, but I think they're, they're pretty Well, it's right solid. here. The odds are right here. Minus 220 is their odds of winning the yes. title. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm happy. I'm I'm you know You're a little I'm, bit a little bit under. I'm getting. Right. I'm doing all right. Shame. I'm also tired of the Warriors, but I'm taking the over on this. Yeah. They're winning it again. Yeah, I'm I, I'm super tired of them. And I, and what I'm finding though is if y'all go one direction, I just have a desire to go the other way to keep it more interesting. But that may not be wise. But we didn't go in the same way. I went on. I went under, and Adi went. Under yeah, this and, one and, and Shane went over. I ha- but I was ready to answer as Shane oh. answered with the yeah. over. I'm tired of him. I don't think they have that many left. But I'm curious about the Cousins effect. I think if he's playing decent ball, that really is a game changer. And so I'm going to stay one more year. I'm going to stay one more year with the Warriors. You know, it's an interesting thing just before we move on to the next one. Who's, you know, Cousins has not been playing well, by the way, the last 10 games, last 15 games. Matter of fact, he's been playing terribly, averaging under 10 points a game, averaging under seven rebounds, shooting 40% from the field. People are starting to wonder, is he a better fit for them versus, I know a guy that's not been great, but did win three titles with him, Javal McGee, who's a purely defensive-oriented yeah, player. People right. are starting to question yeah. that. So let me just go to uh, one last one, uh, just because we have just a few minutes left. Let's go to 5.5 NBA Finals games played by the Bucks and Raptors. So, number one, if you don't think the Bucks and Raptors are going, going to make on. the playoffs, uh, sorry, if you don't think they're going to make the finals, and you certainly go under, um, if one of them makes the finals, though, maybe they get swept in four by the Warriors, and you'd still take the under. So let's go, I'll go to Shane Jensen first. Five and a half finals games played by the Bucks and the Raptors. And just, Adi, make sure you're mm. clear on this. They both can't make the finals. They're in the same conference. That I know. All right. So, All Shane, right. let's start with you. I'm going to take the under because, you know, there's a good chance the Bucks or Raptors are not the representative in the finals. And even if they are the representative... They could lose in four or they'd five. Have to stretch the, they'd have to stretch the Warriors to six or seven games. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take the under. Okay, Cade Massey. I, I like the question a lot, and I do think it's hard. Yeah. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, gonna to take the over. I'm kind of enamored with the Raptors these days. I know they're not a shoe-in. They've got a lot of work to do. But I do think that they could get a couple wins out of the Warriors if they get there. And, you know, the other teams out of the East aren't looking too bad either. So I'll take the over. I love predictions. I like the way Shane framed it. I like predictions that have really compounds to them. So there's two ways that this could not happen. I love those kind. So I'm going to take the under. And I think I'm going to have to agree with Eric on this one. Oh, no. I'm on my own on this yeah, one. Yeah, and, and it's tempting. I mean, it's one, But I do think that there are too many uh, other other teams. I mean, the Celtics are I mean, are they, are they completely terrible? I mean, what's what's their story of making it? No, no they're not no, terrible. No, no. The, the Sixers have, I don't yeah. think, I think outside shots. No, I mean, earlier in the show, we lose. identified those yeah. four as kind yeah. of probably the All right, all right. Well, we got a few more picks on the books then, fellas. And that has been 
One more session of Wharton Moneyball. Two hours. We do this every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. We had Shane, Eric, and Kate in here for the first hour and a half. I'll miss you guys next week. It'll we'll, be a lot of fun. We'll miss you, Eric. I, good luck holding down the fort. I know it's going to be a good show. I know you've got some special guests lined up. You guys could, should come back and join that. So many thanks to Danielle Bruno, our sound engineer. I don't She disappeared there for 30 minutes. Deion Simpkins made an appearance. It was beautiful. And Matty Dats, as always, making the whole thing happen. Much appreciated. This has been... Uh, two hours here at Wharton Moneyball. We'll do it again next Wednesday. Come back and join us. Until then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.